Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. They are signing on to Medicare for all Bernie Sanders bill as fast as they can declare for president in 2020. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we are on a Tuesday, Tuesday, September 12. Good to see you today. We got all the latest for you here on the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Good to have you with us here on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show with all the news of the day from here in Washington. That's where you find us, our little studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. We'll bring you the news from uh, the, the Congress, what's going on in the House, what's going on in the Senate, what's going on down at the White House, where I was at the briefing uh, yesterday with Press Secretary Sarah Sanders and the Homeland Security Advisor at the White House, uh, Mr. Tom Bossert. Also tell you what's going on around the rest of the country. A little update on Hurricane Irma, now a tropical storm. Florida uh, has got the now the big cleanup and recovery challenge. And we'll tell you what's going on around the world as well. Even tougher sanctions yesterday adopted by the U.N. against North Korea. We'll do, uh, we'll, again, all of the above coming up. And we look forward to hearing from you as to what it all means to you. We want to hear from you on Twitter. Send us your comments at BP Show. Uh, we'll round up with some great guests today. Eric Dean, the president of the Iron Workers Union, will be joining us. Jen Bendry covers the Congress for Huffington Post. She'll be in the studio with us as a friend of Bill. And Mr. Alex Badia, the Secretary of State of the great state of California, stepping in as well. Uh, California yesterday filing a lawsuit against the Trump administration for ending the DACA program. All of that coming up. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Tuesday morning. Here is your Hurricane Irma update. Well, it's no longer a hurricane. It's officially been downgraded to a post-tropical cyclone uh, just a few hours ago on this Tuesday morning. Moderate rain is now hitting much of the southeast region. As of a few hours ago, Irma was located. The Eye of Irma was located about 65 miles southwest of Atlanta. Of course, plenty of flooding still going on in the state of Florida. Lots of cleanup. It'll take weeks, maybe even months. Irma is now responsible officially for at least 11 deaths and has left nearly 6.7 million people without power 
still, the general assessment of Irma Bill, I think, is that it's not as bad as it could have been. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I saw the mayor of Miami said that we didn't dodge a bullet, we dodged a cannon. Sure. Uh, and it, it did weaken as it came over land, got weaker as it, as she got weaker as it moved north. So I know a lot of people still, complaining. A lot of damage. A lot of people complaining about having to evacuate. I think evacuations was still the right move uh, in this situation. <laughs> I tell you, definitely the right move on the keys. Exactly, especially considering how nasty these hurricanes could get because of climate change going forward. Uh, via CNN, it looks like Laura Ingram will be joining Fox News' primetime lineup. The syndicated radio host and currently Fox contributor will likely take over the 10 p.m. slot on Fox News Channel. That means Sean Hannity's show, which is currently airing at 10 p.m. on weeknights, will be moving to 9 p.m. And The Five, which had moved to 9 p.m. earlier this year, is now moving back to its original slot of 5 p.m. So Fox News now has Tucker at 8 uh, Sean Hannity at 9 and Laura Ingram at 10. That's a terrible trio. Laura Ingram will bomb. You think so? Make it's that, word, it's right? that easy? Laura Ingram will bomb just the way she has bombed on every other TV show she has had. And I know of at least two of them. One on MSNBC. Forget the other one. Maybe on Fox. Should yeah. be should be pretty interesting. Stick to radio, Laura. Should be pretty interesting to watch. One final story here. It looks like that uh, Whole Foods slashing prices uh, right after Amazon acquiring the grocery chain is doing some major work. According to new data from Foursquare, it shows that foot traffic at Whole Foods is up nearly 25%. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. big time. All right. It's no longer Whole Paycheck. No, no. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Uh, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Jeff Merkley, senators, all the latest to jump on board. Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all train. It is uh, the express train now through the United States Senate. Uh, Everybody looking at 2020 figures we better get on this Medicare for all bandwagon before it's too late. What do you say? Hello, everybody. With that little bit of good news here from Washington, D.C., we bring you the Tuesday edition of the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. And thanks so much for joining us here on Free Speech TV. Thanks for joining us on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. And out in the greater Chicago area, WCPT listeners all, welcome, welcome to the program And don't forget our podcast. The podcast is ready for you up as soon as we go on the air, as soon as we go off the air, all day long. Go to BillPressShow.com, sign up, listen to the podcast, and it's because you can't catch all the show in the morning. We understand that. But uh, later in the day when you got some time, check in. And don't forget, as Jamie always reminds us, to rate and review the podcast. Our podcast numbers have been growing uh, by leaps and bounds. And so we want to keep it going and set a new record here uh, in September. We need your help to do so. Rate and review is my mantra. Rate, review. Rate, Rate, review. review. Just do it. That's it. Rate, review. It's easy enough, right? That's right. Okay. You got it. And it is a busy news day today here. We will have some uh, great guests for you, as always. Uh, You know, our show is 100% sponsored by America's labor unions. uh, Because I'm a union man. 
Uh, this is the voice of the working class of America here every morning, your progressive voice, your progressive union voice. Uh, so one of our great labor leaders, uh, the president of the Iron Workers, Eric Dean, uh, will be joining us just about a half an hour from now. Uh, then Jen Bendery covers the White House and the Congress for Huffington Post. She'll be here, uh, Huff Post, as they now call it. She'll be here in studio with us as a friend of Bill for our entire second hour. And we, uh, Jen and I will be joined by uh, Alex Padilla, who's the Secretary of State of the great state of California, my adopted state. Uh, he is a member also of the DNC's Voter Fraud Commission, which has been which was created as sort of a counterpoint to Donald Trump's phony fake news voter fraud commission, uh, which is actually holding some hearings up in New Hampshire. Uh, Alex Padilla can also uh, talk to us about the effort to move the California primary from June back to March to make California a stronger voice in the primary season and about the lawsuit filed yesterday by the state of California attorney general uh, Javier Becerra to challenge Donald Trump's rescission of DACA. All of that all coming up with our guest. Well, let's take a, a little our, our own little roundup here in this first half hour of the news of the day. And um, we start again as we have just uh, every day for the last two and a half weeks, I guess, uh, with the latest on the hurricane, Hurricane Irma, now no longer a hurricane, a tropical storm dropping a lot of rain uh, in the Georgia area and uh, in the southeast generally. Uh, the, most of it uh, probably in the in, in the area around uh, Atlanta, and yet leaving behind a lot of destruction in Florida. Eleven deaths uh, attributed to Hurricane Irma. Uh, as of this morning, CNN's reporting eight million homes. That's sixty percent of the state of Florida. Eight million homes without power uh, today. Uh, yesterday at the um, White House briefing. Uh, the Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bossert, told us it will be weeks before they're able to restore power. And one of the problems is um, that for people who have been forced out of their home, their homes were flooded, when the water goes down, you, you just can't go back in and turn on the lights. It's not that easy. No. I mean, uh, I know because my father's house was flooded like that. Um, you, the the sockets. There's water in the in the sockets. There's the wires can get corroded. Uh, they've got to be the each home has to be checked to make sure it is safe to restore power to house by house by house. That's going to take weeks to do throughout Florida. And the other thing, Bosser told us is for the people uh, who are, are in the Keys, people f- from the Keys, and there's some seventy nine thousand. People who live in the Florida Keys, 10,000 of them stayed behind. Uh, we don't even know uh, what deaths might be attributed down there to, to Irma because we haven't been able to get there yet. But at any rate, Bossert said it's going to be weeks and weeks before those residents of the Keys are allowed back. Um, one of the reasons is because they're not sure that the bridges and the roads leading down to the Keys are safe. They're going to have to check every little drawbridge, every span. Uh, to make sure that it's, it's safe to travel travel back there. Um, Governor Rick Scott yesterday from Florida uh, issuing a warning with all of that water uh, coming in, particularly from the seas and all that rainfall, uh, a, a, a warning about the rivers of Florida. This rain caused flash flooding in northeast Florida. Rivers across the state continue to rise, and standing water remains an issue over the entire peninsula. 
And uh, again, Governor Scott saying, as I just mentioned, uh, the, 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 the people are, you, the, look, you got everybody's got is eager to get back in, back to their home, find out what damage was done, uh, start the cleanup, but um, don't rush into it, he says. Don't think just because this thing packed, you can run home, or passed, you can run home. We've got, we've got down power lines all across the state. We've got roads that are impassable still across, across the state. We've got debris all over the state. And the area's hardest hit, it seems, uh, Key Largo, which got a direct hit. Uh, Miami got a lot of uh, heavy winds, even though it wasn't a direct hit. Marco Island, the direct hit on the west coast of Florida. And so it was both sides of Florida, actually, uh, uh, the entire length of the state. And Jacksonville, record flooding yesterday, um, all the way up in the northern part of the state on the on the eastern coast. So Irma, pardon me, behind us, um, don't know the latest. Actually, I lost track of Hurricane Jose. I don't either, actually. I, as far yeah. as I know, it was it's weakened considerably. I think it has. Didn't see anything about it this morning. Uh, that's on the hurricane front. Yesterday, of course, was a day uh, that we all took time out to remember uh, 16 years ago, September 11. Uh, President Trump yesterday uh, at the Pentagon saying, we will, as a nation, pull together and never forget. We mourn them. We honor them, and we pledge to never, ever forget them. Uh, that is uh, far different, of course, from uh, the Donald Trump that we used to see and used to hear uh, about September 11. Uh, there was a time when the only, don- only thing, remember, that during the campaign uh, that Donald Trump talked about, this is one more thing he talked about with zero evidence, never proven true, that there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims who were celebrating, dancing in the streets in New Jersey uh, when the Twin Towers came down and Donald Trump said he even saw some of that with his own eyes himself. And I watch our police and our firemen down in 7-Eleven, down at the World Trade Center, right after it came down. And I was there, and I watched, and I helped a little bit clearing the rubble, trying to find additional lives. I saw people getting together and in fairly large numbers celebrating as the World Trade Center was coming down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- thanks to our friend Vic Berger on Twitter for putting that together, by the way. Uh, you know what? I don't believe a word of that. I certainly don't believe that Donald Trump, in his fancy suit with his fancy tie, and his fancy shoes was in the rubble, helping clear the rubble of 9-11. First of all, the first responders would have not have allowed somebody like him in there, no, right? No. no. I mean, that is just a fault. I mean, even Rudy Giuliani, when he was down there, he wasn't wearing a suit. I mean, he was... Well, he was I saw Rudy Giuliani in a suit. He was the mayor, but he wasn't in the rubble. Right, that's tra- what I mean. That's, yeah, no, I mean... Down in 7-Eleven. Yeah, right, 7-Eleven, mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he confused that with his favorite store. And if he wasn't talking about the size of the crowds, uh, he was bragging about, yeah, even on this holy day, solemn day, he was bragging about, this is this is a telephone conversation last uh, back at the time, right? This was on September 11, well, on, 2001. That's right, yep. on September Live 11. TV interview. What strikes him, what strikes him is, that now his building down on Wall Street, which was the second tallest 
is now the tallest because the World Trade Center is down. You have one of the landmark buildings down in the financial district, 40 Wall Street. Well, it was an amazing phone call I made. 40 Wall Street actually was the second tallest building in downtown Manhattan. And it was actually before the World Trade Center was the tallest. And then when they built the World Trade Center, it became known as the second tallest. And now it's the tallest. <laughs> yeah. What an amazing phone call. When he gets word that the World Trade Center has, has, has fallen, right? What an amazing phone call, Donald Trump says, because that call told me that I now have the tallest building in New York. Hours, hours after away. the Twin Towers collapsed, yes. Yes. a national tragedy, a national emergency, the most important thing to Donald Trump is he's now, the size of his buildings. The size of his building. Mm. He's, he's, now got, he's now got the number one building. Sick, sick, sick. Thank God for audio and video. <clears throat> It helps us uh, never, never forget. The briefing yesterday, I mentioned that uh, Tom Bossert was there, the Homeland Security uh, Advisor. Um, so one subject that comes up, one of the first subjects that came up with with his part of the program, um, he was asked by um, Jim Acosta from CNN whether there might be, um, he would see, any connection between... Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Jose, all the fires out in the West, and climate change. The last thing Bossert is going to do with Donald Trump watching is say that climate change is for real. So he tries to dance around it any way he can. I think what's prudent for us right now is to make sure that those response capabilities are there. Causality is something outside of my ability to analyze right now. I will tell you that we continue to take seriously uh, the climate change, not the cause of it, but the things that we observe. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not even admitting climate change. We're certainly not concerned about the causes of it. Uh, All we're looking about is helping people who have been impacted uh, by a hurricane, which, uh, which, which, which was certainly strengthened and made all the more... Uh, dangerous by climate change. And so Jim Acosta follows up, come on, you're not willing to admit any connection? Does the thought occur to you, geez, you know, maybe maybe there is something to this this climate change thing and its connection to powerful hurricanes? Uh, where, where, do you just separate the two and say, boy, these are a lot of big hurricanes coming our way? Well, I don't know if I say either, but I do note that there's a cyclical nature of a lot of these hurricane seasons. And uh, I think uh, the scientists for their forecast on this particular one, uh, they were dead on that this would be a stronger and more powerful hurricane season with slightly more than average large storms making landfall in the United States. So we'll have to do a larger trend analysis at a later date. Uh, no, 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 yeah, the scientists, well, true, the scientists were right on about where Harvey was going to hit and how strong it was going to be. They were right on about where Irma was going to hit and how hard it was, and how tough it was going to be. And they were also right on when they said climate change is responsible for the intensity of these storms. Not for the storms themselves. There always have been hurricanes. But the fact that they're getting stronger, happening more often, having greater impact, dropping more rainfall, all due to climate change. Yes. So they're only, you know, they only listen to the scientists with one ear, right? They won't hear what the scientists or accept what the scientists are saying. In the other ear. It was just total denial. I kept, I kept thinking, standing there, in the back of the room at the new, at the briefing yesterday, I kept thinking about Al Gore, whose funny line was always, denial is not just a river in Egypt. No. Denial is the coin of the realm in the Trump White House when it comes to 
climate change. It's as if these scientists handed the evidence of climate change on on a piece of paper, and the White House took that piece of paper and put it in a can and kicked it right down the road. They don't care. No. no. Not their problem. No. No. And by the way, what a contrast to the Pope. Yes, Pope Francis. On his way back from Colombia, he does this now. It's, a, it's a, become a, a practice of his that on flying back from any foreign trip, he always goes to the back, back of the plane and uh, has a news conference with reporters. I'd love to attend one of those one of these days. At any rate, Pope Francis was asked about this same, on that, asked that same question yesterday. Uh, any connection between the hurricane? Did he see any connection between the hurricanes and climate change? Uh, Pope Francis said actually that people have to understand that humanity, this is his words, humanity will go down. Humanity will go down if we do not address climate change, and history will judge those who deny the science on its cause, the science on its causes. In other words, history will judge Donald Trump. History will judge the people around him. History will judge James Inhofe, the senator from Oklahoma, for denying climate change and the damage that they have done to this planet. Um, remember the Pope uh, a couple of years ago, yeah, it was 2015 now, uh, wrote a major encyclical, uh, papal encyclical on climate change, saying it's real and we have a responsibility as people of faith to do something about it. Uh, the Pope telling the reporters again yesterday, quote, if someone is doubtful that this is true, they should ask scientists. They are very clear. These are not opinions made on the fly. They are very clear. Then each person can decide and history will judge the decisions. The Pope yesterday speaking uh, very clearly on the issue of climate change. Um, don't you love it uh, when people who praise the Pope and agree with the Pope when he says something they agree with, but when he's saying something uh, that serious, something that weighty on the issue of climate change, uh, they simply ignore him. But they'll still go to Rome and have, his, have their picture taken with him. You know, I, I want to note, I guess U.S. journalists were not allowed to ask questions yesterday to the Pope. Really? I wonder if that was a uh, huh. specific slight of the leader of our country. I, I didn't know that. didn't know that. Yes, indeed. All right. Thank you for adding that. Um, on the home front, one of the uh, most exciting things, I think, happening in the Congress, I believe it's tomorrow or Thursday uh, that Senator, Senator Bernie Sanders is going to introduce his legislation on Medicare for all. Uh, as he calls it, or single payer, as other people, it's often been, long been called. Uh, and what's interesting is the, are the senators who are signing on. Almost everybody who has indicated that they are considering jumping into the 2020 uh, presidential contest has signed on now to be a co-sponsor of Bernie's Medicare for All bill. So first of all, it's Bernie Sanders' bill. It's his issue. That's the main issue that he ran on uh, in, uh, 20, in 2016. And he's the creator, he's the author of the bill, if you will. Co-sponsors include Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, Jeff Merkley of uh, Oregon, 
uh, and Kamala Harris from California. The latest, Cory Booker from New Jersey. Cory Booker yesterday um, in an interview was saying, damn right, I'm on board and proud to be there. I'm signing on to Medicare for All, which is, I'm, I'm excited to do this week. Senator Sanders and myself and others are going to be announcing some legislation. I'm signing on to some other of my colleagues, all of us working towards this understanding that if you look at American history, it has always been advancements towards greater equality, greater access, greater opportunity. And what we have right now is a country where just because of your wealth will depend upon the kind of, whether you have health care or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you should not be punished because you're working class or poor and be denied health care. There are even more Democratic senators who are expected to uh, sign on before uh, before the senator makes his uh, actual, uh, before Bernie Sanders makes his actual uh, uh, announcement. But I, I think it's very exciting. Let me tell you one thing for sure. This would never have happened, never have happened if Bernie Sanders had not run for president. So in response to uh, Hillary's book that Bernie did nothing but hurt the Democratic Party and Bernie shouldn't have run and Bernie just hurt me and Bernie's responding, you know, blah, 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 blame Bernie for the fact that I lost to Donald Trump. Nonsense. Bernie's had a real impact and this issue, which has been around for a long time, is suddenly now front and center and the leading issue for the Democratic Party. I think it will be the cutting-edge issue uh, for the midterm elections in 2018, and I think it will be the cutting issue for the presidential election of, 20, of 2020. Uh, it, and it will be the, the primary go- goal or, or, or agenda of the Democrat, that Democrats running up and down the ballot from the state legislature all the way up are going to be asked, where do you stand on Medicare for all? Now, call me crazy, but stay with me here, okay? I have a theory. theory. So Chuck Schumer got Donald Trump to sign on with a debt ceiling deal, right? And supposedly that may have happened because Donald Trump is upset with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. So he's Mm -hmm. doing things to spite them right now. Right. So if Chuck Schumer... (laughs) signs on to Medicare for All, which is no guarantee, obviously, between now and, and I guess, Wednesday when this actually goes to the floor. No, but that that's that's going to be, if he, if, he, if he were to do so, be, to Bernie's word, huge. Right. So does Chuck Schumer speak New York, as Nancy Pelosi would say, to Donald Trump and get Donald Trump on board with Medicare for All? Uh, well, let's remember this. If he... I, I think that's a ways down the road, but it's not. I'm just imp- saying it's a, it's no, a no, possibility. No, no. But it's not impossible because Donald Trump once supported single payer. Right. When Donald Trump was just Donald Trump in the Trump Tower and not running for president, Donald Trump actually came out and said, I forget the exact words, that he was for single payer, that everybody ought to have health insurance just like they do in Canada or just like they do in Western Europe. Now, when he started running for president, you know, he changed his position on on a lot of issues. So uh, for Donald Trump, it might not be so um, dramatic a shift. It would be dramatic, but I mean, not not such a conflict as you think. He, he might be going back to his roots and not discovering something It's just new. incredible to think about. Like, it was just, what, two or three months ago that we were rallying on, 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 on the Capitol for just to keep Obamacare? Yeah, And now we're talking about Medicare for all as a real possibility. And Republicans in Congress, I, I saw reports yesterday from many of our congressional reporter friends saying Republicans in Congress have just come to terms with they have to accept that Obamacare is going to stay. Yeah. 
Right. Single payer could be next. Even though they've done everything they can to uh, to undermine it. So we'll be watching that. That's uh, that's uh, that's going to be, I think, the biggest news this week. We'll talk to Jen Bender about that, uh, who covers the Congress for HuffPost uh, uh, a little bit later. DACA, we know that uh, right after, remember the B, one of the BS reasons that Donald Trump, the White House, gave for ending the DACA program was, well, we had no choice, um, Jeff Sessions said this, we had to do it because 10 states were going to file a lawsuit if we didn't uh, end the program. <laughs> well, guess what? 15 states, right after the day after Donald Trump uh, ended DACA, filed a lawsuit challenging uh, and opposing what the Trump administration has done in ending DACA, uh, you heard me query that next day and express my disappointment that California was not one of those 15 states. I couldn't understand it. I certainly thought California would be out in front. Well, California did catch up yesterday. Attorney General Javier Becerra announcing California filing its own lawsuit. The great state of California will be filing a lawsuit today against the Trump administration for its unconstitutional and Ill- illegal termination of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Right. Uh, Javier Becerra. And Javier Becerra is saying, um, wh- here's one of the reasons why, because if you're talking uh, dreamers and you're talking California, you're talking home central base of dreamers being the great state of California. It just so happens that one of every four of the DACA recipients in this country, some 200,000, live and work and call California their home. And they've been helping California become the sixth largest economy in the world. One out of four dreamers living uh, in the state of uh, California. Uh, And that lawsuit yesterday filed by um, Javier Becerra on behalf of Governor Jerry Brown and the residents of the great state of California. And finally, Jamie, the big news today is Apple. Apple coming forth today with uh, very uh, a lot of big changes to the iPhone. They're going to be introducing the iPhone 8, the iPhone 8 Plus, and then a super iPhone. They're calling iPhone X, which is going to retail, they say, for about $1,000. $9.99. Question, $9.99. The question is, will people pay $1,000 for a super-duper iPhone? What do you think? Of course they will. It's Apple. Anytime they release anything new, people turn out in hordes. You they, know what? I, I bet it'll be record numbers just because it's iPhone X. No. X. I, I, I totally agree. Apple is... It's... it's I don't know. Maybe um, what Amazon is the number one company, but but right. but Apple is now worth. Eight, I saw this morning, eight hundred and thirty-five billion dollars, uh, and it just keeps growing and keeps getting better and better. And I got to tell you, their products get better and better. I mean, uh, Steve Jobs, as brilliant as he was, Tim Cook has taken Apple to even greater heights. So. Um, I feel so old-fashioned now already that, you know, I just have an iPhone 6. You ready to start unlocking your— I don't even your, have a 7. You ready to start unlocking your phone with your face? That's uh, supposedly the, 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 the big feature, the facial recognition. You just look at that phone, and it switches on. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a little yeah. big brother. He kind of freaks me out. I'm not going to lie. Uh, yes, indeed. So we'll see all the details as to what it offers. I think there's some uh, new additions to the iPhone, uh, to the uh, to the. Uh, 
uh, the watch as well, which I don't have yet. But anyway, I'm excited to see what they come up with. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's our roundup of the news today. Um, what's happening on uh, the front with the uh, with organized labor? Uh, how uh, are unions faring under the Donald Trump administration? A good friend, the general president of the Iron Workers, Eric Dean, joins us here in studio. Coming up next, stay with us. And I watch our police and our firemen down in 7-Eleven. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Here we go on The Bill Press Show uh, this Tuesday, September 12. Again, great to see you as we come to you live coast to coast uh, on radio, on television, uh, on Free Speech TV, of course, and uh, out in the greater Chicago area on the great voice, progressive voice of Chicago, WCPT, and nationwide as well on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us on a very busy news day. I want to kick back and talk about, we've told you uh, often, our show sponsored uh, 100% by America's labor unions uh, and very proud that those sponsors include the Iron Workers Union, uh, Iron Workers International Union. For them, the sky is the limit, they say. And the president of the Iron Workers, Eric Dean, joining us in studio this morning. Mr. President, Eric, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Bill. Yeah. So, um, I was taking a little look at your website last night. I didn't realize the iron workers are really one of the oldest of the labor unions, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, we're, we celebrated our 121st year this year. Whoa. Yeah. 1896. 1896. 1896, right. Yeah. Um, and just so people understand, tell us about I mean, what do iron workers like really do? Well, what, what we do mostly is we build everything that you can imagine. So we build the skyscrapers that are in your communities. We build schools, universities, roads, bridges, major industrial facilities. And if you took the disciplines of what an iron worker does, everyone pictures the iconic guys walking on the skyscraper in the right, beams. That, right. That's a good majority of what we do. But we also put the rebar and the concrete that gives it the rigidity or the strength on both bridges, any any concrete structure. So that's the sort of the, the foundation, right? But you also take care of the superstructure. Well, then you go to any high-rise and you see a high-rise building, us and the glazers, we work usually collaboratively, and we do also the cladding that wraps those buildings with the, the metal work and the glass. Sometimes it's an all-ironworker application. Sometimes it's a glazing application. But a lot of times we work jointly, and that's a big component of our work, too. And then major industrial rigging, hoisting with cranes. We work with the crane operators um, quite a bit. But what we are not is, and I'm, I'm proud to call the steelworkers my brothers, many people cannot differentiate between an ironworker and a steelworker. The ironworkers are the construction phase. Phase, right. Yeah. Now, um, but the classic image of the ironworker, I remember that great photo of the the skyscraper, I think it's New York, and the guys sitting there eating their lunch out on a, on a uh, I don't know, piece of superstructure or whatever. You know, recently, I, I'm not uh, on Facebook, but someone sent me a picture. Uh, some of my brothers in Chicago, that's where I'm from, they recreated that picture in their high-vis orange 
and uh, green and all their safety yeah. harnesses. It's a, it's it's a modern version of that same picture, and they're they're having lunch. But what I'm getting to is it's a dangerous occupation. There's no doubt. Yeah, there's right? a lot of skill. We always work aloft. Most of our stuff's either on the leading edge, lifting some of the heaviest, uh, most precarious rigging procedures, and then whether you're working on the curtain wall, you're on the edge of the building on a high-rise on the World Trade Center, whether you're working on a steel um, skyscraper, you're working aloft, and whether you're putting rebar, you're always progressing from the top. So that's how they get that, um, um, they're, they're called the cowboys in the sky. Yeah, right? that, that's one of uh, the nicknames, <laughs> the monikers that so sticks with us. Has it be, is it more safe today than it was? Yeah, you, you know, the insurance community and the union fought for regulations that protect workers. But, I mean, are they, like, strapped in? I mean, yeah. yeah. Today, a steel erector has to have uh, lanyards, and they have beamers, and they have different safety devices that just weren't engineered at that time. We do have some variants that allow for the flow of steel erection within a certain limit. Um, Within OSHA's regulations, it's called steel erection negotiated rulemaking. But you have to have written procedures, and our members have that trained. And you can't be afraid of heights. No, no it's <laughs> not for the phantom heart. No, I, 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 certainly not for me. So I was looking at some of the um, iconic structures, right, that iron workers, you can say, point to that. You as president of the iron workers. The St. Louis Arch, Golden Gate Bridge, right, the World Trade Center, uh, the New Freedom Tower. Um, and Sears Tower, I guess, in Chicago. Yep. I mean, yeah. 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 You know, we get known for the iconic projects, the monumental projects. But, you know, we're just as proud to build grammar schools and be mm-hmm. in the community, water treatment facilities. There's no glamour and glory you don't get on the cover, <laughs> usually, of big construction no. magazines. But uh, those pay well, and uh, those are equally important. Uh, I, I, I noticed on the list there weren't any Trump Towers, but I, I imagine that. Actually, we've had good luck in the areas where they're union dense. Our contractors sometimes have to haggle to get paid on the end of the projects. Oh, oh. that's a historic practice, it has. But uh, yeah, we've we've read about that. One of the things that I've noticed in a lot of the trades is that um, it's father and son, or grandfather and father and son. Is that tradition also in the iron workers? Well, I'm I'm a fourth generation, and my son's a fifth. But Get I, out! I really? try not to lead the organization that it can only be father to son. We want to be more welcoming, right, and right. inclusive. But there is some of that. Yeah, I mean, sure. I think that's uh, that's impressive, and it's yeah. you know again a true. I, I I see it and meet a lot of different union members who's they're there. Their dad was a member. It says something about the importance of the union to these families. I was going to college, and my dad asked me how I liked college, and I told him I didn't like it so much. So he gave me a a pretty stiff. Ironworker lecture, and I can't say what he said, but, <laughs> but he basically yeah. told me to sign up for the apprenticeship program, but to keep my grades up until I was selected, in the, if I was lucky enough to be selected in the apprenticeship program. Otherwise, I was going to stay in school and keep my studies up. And uh, yeah, how, how can someone whose brother and father were ironworkers, my uncle was an ironworker, my great-grandfather was an ironworker, and they're telling me this this isn't for you, you know. Yeah. So it's in you. And my son, I made my son, he graduated with a construction management degree and then signed up for the apprenticeship program, was fortunate enough to be selected. So so, so what does that say about, um, you know, we've, we've, you and I have talked about this. The unions today, the membership in the unions, in the private sector, public sector, down, you know. Uh, but 
this the fact that that you and others want to follow in your father or your mother's footstep and be a member of the union says something about the importance of the union to American families, right? I mean, so well, you what, grow up, what, it's what at you your see? table. You know, it's in your DNA when, you're, when your father preaches unionism. But and, what are the benefits for, for uh, uh, being a member of a union? Well, there's retirement security. You know, the pension plan gives someone, it keeps you in a pool of workers and the contractors, it keeps those workers available to that group of contractors. And then to be able to get health care and provide for your family, it's just, it's the difference maker. The wages are great. The benefits are usually what differentiates and what what, what makes people want to stay in the business. Right. So what is the uh, health of the labor movement today under uh, uh, a Donald Trump administration? Um, I would say the jury is out. Uh, we expected far worse, and right now, they they just can't get their um, act governance or act together per se, right. and and for us the opportunity is um, we we want to build things, so we we endorsed Hillary Clinton we did not endorse Donald Trump, but forty percent of my members voted for him. So what I have to do as the president is walk a fine line between openly being critical and trying to find positives to work on and initiatives. So far. His ability and disconnect with Congress has been frustrating because it looks like what we've been eager for is the infrastructure, and we're looking uh, to see where the energy comes and what the opportunities are. Right. And everything keeps getting pushed back, and we're afraid we're going to get creeped out of the legislative agenda past the midterms. So you've got a choice, I imagine, and all the unions did, with a guy like a Donald Trump coming in is not necessarily starting off as your friend to either just say, we're just going to oppose everything he does for four years, or we're going to try to find some areas where we can work together and continue to make some progress, right? Right. It's, I, it's I the have, pragmatic side, right, versus the dogmatic side. I have the good fortune side. of having two living ex-general presidents. We call them general president emeritus as we bestowed them, and they're my advisors. And I looked back through our history journals, and I went back to 1968 to find a time when we supported the other candidate, someone won uh, by the Electoral College and not yeah. mm-hmm. not by the popular vote. And I emulated the president's page at that time, which basically said, we're not going to obstruct for the sake of obstruction. We're going to champion things that we can support, and then we're going to fight like hell for the things we are in disagreement with. Right. Uh, the very There's a little bit of both. Yeah, but I think that makes yeah. sense. It's a pragmatic yeah. approach. Uh, and you mentioned infrastructure. Don't you think Donald Trump would have been pretty far ahead if he started with infrastructure instead of starting to repeal Obamacare? Agreed, yeah. And instead of just trying to take away or eradicate the previous president's um, legacy issues, um, we, we say this all the time, and we say it to both sides of the aisle. Infrastructure is not red nor blue. You know, It's how goods get to market. It's how commerce happens. But it's also how workers get to work. It's not just about the road and bridge builders. It's about, you know, good infrastructure helps commerce happen and it adds to the GDP of a country. And right now America is just on this austerity measure when it comes to investing in infrastructure. And those are not handouts. Those are investments that right. they, they're, they're failing to see right now. What is the what is the, the critical need for infrastructure in this country in terms of we're talking roads, we're talking bridges, we're talking... Well, it's across, the, it's the full spectrum. You know, 
there's energy infrastructure for distribution. Uh, our electrical like grid, like grid is ancient. Uh, our roads and bridges, the existing ones, most of them are uh, running in a deficient because there's a um, there's not enough funding to just continually maintain what we have. And then as you modernize, you know, we're driving on our on my grandparents' roads and bridges in yeah, this country. Yeah. We're flushing the toilets to our sewage treatment facilities. And, you know, God, you know, the worst case examples up in Michigan and Flint, but our water systems, our sewage treatment systems, all those things need to be either continually improved or upgraded as populations grow. And we're not seeing the government have that appetite. And now they want to privatize everything. So I, I yeah. don't know if you're going to have to put a coin in your toilet to flush <laughs> it. or, But they want to toll every road or bridge, and it's just not practical. Right. And, and uh, one of the other upsides, of course, those are better facilities, better life, safer safer uh, driving and, and, and across the board, but also millions of jobs. Yeah. I, I bore people ad nauseum, but the last time we raised the gas tax in this country, Bill Clinton was president. And half of that money went for deficit reduction in a negotiation with uh, Newt Gingrich. So we are operating today and funding our road and bridge maintenance program off of $1,994, $93. That's the last time we saw that. And cars are getting better mileage. And there's even right. electric cars today that aren't using no consuming no gas. So a trillion dollars is the, the – that's, that's the what big Donald number. Trump talked about. Uh, yeah. That's the big number. Is it, will yeah. That, will that do it? Well, it's not where the engineers predict they need to be, but a trillion dollars would be wonderful. I mean, that that's a laudable goal. If it's all private capital, then organized labor has to fight to get worker protections and standards in. We would like to see the federal dollars, federal government spend as much of those dollars as possible because let, let's take one signature job, the tunnel to New York. You can toll the hell out of that job, yeah. and you'll pay for it. But how do you get roads and bridges unless populated areas and we still need commerce to flow across this country and so you can't be disparate between where there's population population centric or vehicle traffic to pay for that but you asked about the full spectrum so i would say energy water distribution uh, pipelines we need our pipelines are so archaic we need modern pipelines to improve the safety and health condition of the distribution of gas and oil in this country and not live off of 40- and 50-year-old pipelines. Um, so the Republicans today control the House, they control the Senate, they control the White House. What, what, what's the number one thing you're afraid of that they might do with all of that power? Well, they did it already. They put in a Supreme Court justice who's, in our opinion, an anti-worker and tilted the court, and we feel like labor law is going to be set for maybe a generation. It's something that I kind of predicted in front of the election, by so, this court, you mean? Well, it's and, a five to four ledges. court, and yeah. we're expecting a law to be heard by the Supreme Court that's going to hurt our public sector union brothers, essentially making a national right to work situation for government workers. And, you know, the construction workers can say that, you know, we're immunized by that. You know, we're all in this together, and it's them first, and they'll come after construction worker protection. So the right to work would come, that's, I thought, you might say right to work, but it's I JNS I, is the bill. Uh, yeah, I saw it as a bill, not as a, 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 by a, an act of Congress, not an act of the Supreme Court. The Supreme but. Court's going to hear a case. It's the Friedrichs case revisited under the term of Janus. When, when, and if it's heard and if it's affirmed, 
They will essentially make right to work for all public sector unions, and timeline looks like it's next summer. That That's a big uh, gut punch for organized labor period, whether you're in the construction trades or not. And those 40% of your members who voted for Donald Trump, uh, you know, we keep, any regrets? That- we keep polling, and, and there's... That's probably, by the way, if I can, that's across the board, I guess, for particularly the construction trades, isn't it? You know, I don't know where everyone else is. Uh, I would say that's a safe bet, but I don't want to speak for other groups. But I'll tell you that for my union, 41% voted for Mitt Romney, 44% voted for Donald Trump. The problem was we kept articulating, and we had a very high turnout for Hillary, but we didn't have high enough to make the difference in, the say, the blue wall states. What was it for um, Romney got... 41. He only picked up 3 or 4%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it wasn't overwhelming. I'll tell you, we polled our members back in 15 when there was 13 candidates in the race on the Republican side, and it was Hillary, Bernie, and Donald Trump when there was 13 candidates on the Republican side. So he's had this appeal. He's resonated. And, you know, I, I feel like he gets on all three sides of every issue, and he's always says enough to be safe that he can always fall back on one. But, you know, we're, we're going to pick the good stuff and we're going to champion it right now. There's got to be a mesh. Congress passes the bill. So I'm going to give – I'm not one to give breaks, but I'm not going to blame – Donald Trump's rhetoric is harmful to the workers mm-hmm. of this country when he takes away worker protections, when he advocates for infrastructure. Everybody lightens up and feels positive about it. But it's going to require Congress to do their jobs – he only is going to sign that bill. And I don't want to diminish, diminish the importance of the presidency. Yeah, Congress has been hyper-partisan since Gore and, and Bush. And, you know, we've we've seen it intensify under maybe President Obama. But I, I don't think we're any more hyper-partisan than we were before. It's time for Congress to get there. Do you find any Republicans who uh, support unions? Yeah, we, we, we've allied... And we have about 50-some that will stay on at least the Davis-Bacon worker protection side of the bill. Um, we, we've fostered dialogue through the building trades just to talk to the business community so that they can understand we supply, train. If you aggregate all the building trades apprenticeship programs, we'd be the fourth largest school district in North America. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Because of all the trades, we have 156 training centers throughout the United States and Canada. So our capacity to train and resupply the workers is predicated on having some demand. We're not going to train widgets and stack them on a shelf. We're training iron workers that need a paycheck. So it's kind of like this supply and demand delicate balance. And every one of my building trades brothers and sisters are kind of in that same boat, right? Right. Uh, Eric Dean is with us. He's the president of the Iron Workers. Find out more about their good work at ironworkers.org and all these. Uh, this I was impressed by the training programs, as you mentioned, that you've got you know all over the, all over the country. And th- these young people are in there for what four or five years? Three to four years is our average four. apprenticeship program. That's it. We spend ninety million in aggregate, both from the national program and down at the affiliates on uh, apprenticeship training, but also on journeyman retraining. You're not just done after three or four years. People come back for new certifications and re-up. Now, one of the wraps on the construction trades has always been, and is still today, um, that the trades are 97% men. 
Uh, what percentage of uh, female iron workers do you have, and what are you doing about it? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're at 2%. <laughs> there you go. So, right. Long uh, way to go. When, huh? I be- when I became <laughs> general president, I noticed that we had an abundance of male leadership. So I put a notice out to all my uh, leaders to keep an eye out for either an officer or someone that I can empower to come work at the international level and represent and add to diversity. So I hired a 31-year uh, experienced female iron worker, and I made her in charge of diversity, and she also had some safety bona fides. Mm-hmm. So I have her uh, moonlight in the safety department. And uh, in one year, or almost two, a year and a half now, she is the chairwoman of the National Building Trades Committee on Women, and we've implemented the first of its kind maternity benefit in our union to not only retain the ones we have, because oftentimes if they leave to have a baby, they lose their yes. health insurance coverage, and there's a gap. So what we wanted to do yeah. is provide the Band-Aid in between, and they have to leave the workforce because the work is strenuous and heavy, and yeah, you sure. can't be working a loft carrying a baby. And you know, So when the doctor tells them, hey, look, you got to come out of work, we did not have a benefit like that, and so we, we provided that benefit, and then now we're marketing that when we go to career fairs to show that the iron workers are a welcoming place and an opportunity, and we're trying to drive that number north. And is that uh, is that going on across uh, across the board with the, the United with the, States uh, and Canada construction and, trades? Um, we're not. We're the first. Sometimes, <laughs> it, you know, we're the first to top of buildings when we're building skyscrapers. <laughs> yeah. we, we like to be the first. So I would say we're the tip of the spear. Um, some of my peers have been asking me how we fund it, what the matrix are, and I think people are looking to see what the experience is and. Uh, and we have a good labor management group, and we did that through our labor management group because the contractors said, look, we have a demand as well, and we would hate to see – they looked at it from a business perspective. We've spent about 9000 bucks a year training these folks, and then if they leave and don't come back after they attain journeyman status, then there's no opportunity. Now we've got to resupply another one, and we would much rather keep the female component – and so we, we feel that's a win-win. You know, it's good for our members, who female members who are members and our sisters right now, but it's also pretty good to be able to go to a career fair. If the trades are 97% men, I don't know what the percentage is of white, but it's a pretty high percentage, too, of Caucasian, right? Is there an effort in terms of diversity, well, she, racial she's diversity in, she's as well? She's in charge for raci- racial diversity as well. I would say that... Uh, we have, uh, you know, there was a period of time in the 60s and 70s where consent decrees were coming and the trades were accused of being not inclusive. That's not the case today. In the national building trades, we have, uh, I, I don't know the numbers, so I don't want to do a disservice, but we have apprenticeship readiness programs in cities where there's pre-apprenticeship programs to get people ready to enter into the building trades Particularly programs. people of color coming from and We're targeting those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And then in addition, uh, like I can tell you, m- my union, we have a high rate of uh, Latino members. So we are more diverse than we were, say, in the 60s. We're much better than where we were. There's a, there's significant room for improvement, and that's why I put uh, Miss O'Leary on, so she could address those concerns. And so first thing she had to do was go get to know everyone on my leadership team. And I elevated her into a national position, the first, mm-hmm. the first, but there will be others. So you're uh, you're a, um, a prophet there or a leader. In, Trying in the, to think least. outside of the box and, you know, 
be just, you know, there's only one way we can resupply the workforce, and it's to avail ourselves to all the available folks, and that's inclusive of the female iron workers. Yeah. Well, you are in for a uh, uh, already starting an interesting ride uh, head of a labor union in the time of uh, Donald Trump. Have you met with him at the White House? I have not met with him at the White House, but I have had the opportunity to meet him. Okay. If he called a meeting at the White House for the construction trades, would you go? Yeah, I'd have to. You know, um, I think uh, the president of the United States, no matter who he is, she, you should defer the respect until he the, betrays that opportunity of uh, not having my respect anymore. And and you don't have to agree with him on every issue, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's the Ironworkers, ironworkers.org. President Eric Dean, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. Bill. All right. Uh, great to hear your point of view, and uh, thank you again for your support of the program. Appreciate right. it. And we will be right back. Jen Bendry joins us from HuffPost and what's going on in the Congress. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. They are flocking to the Medicare for All bill, the latest Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand and Jeff Merkley. Bernie, the big man, and introducing that bill tomorrow. What do you say, everybody? Great to see you on Tuesday, September 12. It is the Bill Press Show. As always, we are here in our studio on Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., bringing you all the news of the day and uh, giving you a chance to uh, tell us what you think about it all. We're here with you on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And uh, there's so much going on today, I couldn't do it all myself. We needed uh, needed some help today. Uh, And so she is here as a friend of Bill for the entire hour from HuffPost covering the White House and the Congress. Our good friend, Jen Bendry. Hello, Jen. How are you? I'm good. Just back from Alaska, we might add, uh, and another trip in between, huh? I was in Wyoming and upstate New York. I've been gone for about three weeks. Wyoming? Yeah. And upstate New York? Yeah. And Alaska. All right. (laughs) Stories to tell. Lots of stories. Man, (laughs) I got to tell you for sure. Uh, And with with Jen, we'll be talking about, yes, the efforts on uh, Medicare for all, this deal between Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, could it lead maybe to other deals? And what does that deal do to the dynamics of this Congress, which is still controlled by Republicans? All of that coming up. And don't forget, we want to hear from you what it means to you, what you think about it all. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Jen Bendry and I jump into it with both feet in a minute. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Tuesday morning. We begin with the United States' current relations with Mexico. 
Uh, back. You mean in, the people are going to pay for that wall? Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Back, uh, back in the last week of August, of course, Hurricane Harvey submerged the city of Houston. Mexico, you may not have heard of this at the time, quickly offered help. They quickly hmm. offered aid, money to send to the U.S. to help with the recovery uh, efforts. The Mexican foreign ministry at the time saying there would be no money for the border wall, just money to be a good neighbor uh, and help the folks of Houston recover. However, on Monday morning, the Mexican foreign ministry issued a statement withdrawing the country's offer of aid. Now, of course, Mexico is dealing with both an earthquake and a hurricane. They had Hurricane Katia hit uh, a couple yeah, of days right. ago. Right. So they've got their own situation. But some say that Mexico may have uh, well, been public about issuing the statement about revoking the aid because Donald Trump never responded to their offer of giving the aid to Harvey in the first place. Donald Trump just refused to acknowledge it. Thus, Mexico took the offer off the table. What do you guys think happened? <laughs> That's as good a guess as Eddie, right? I mean, I think we'll be okay without Mexico's help, but man, that that, that just looks so bad on Trump. Uh, yeah, it's not even polite, you know? I mean, um, if you're in a hospital, right, and somebody, I don't know, sends you a Get well wishes and you say, no, I don't want it. <laughs> Just slam the door in their face. Slam the door in their Build face. a wall in the doorway. Yeah. For our next story, let's go to Twitter. Late last night, if you were following Ted Cruz, you noticed some interesting activity. Ted Cruz's official Twitter account liked a sexually explicit post from the Twitter handle at Sexual Posts. It's an account on Twitter that shares porn pictures and videos. Yes, actual porn pictures and videos, if it can get through Twitter's filter, in the two-minute hardcore video that Ted Cruz liked, shows up in his likes, a woman reportedly comes home and discovers a couple having sex on her living room couch and begins to masturbate. Uh, the like has been removed from Ted Cruz's account. A Cruz spokeswoman said the offensive tweet posted on Ted Cruz's account earlier has been removed by staff and reported to Twitter. I don't know. I think Ted Cruz liked that uh, tweet on his own. Who put it up there? We don't know, huh? Well, what was the timestamp on it, too? Yes. It was late Monday, late last night. So Ted Cruz may have been going to bed and checking Twitter. This first... was his verified account. Verified account. I might have to start following <laughs> Ted Cruz. <laughs> On TV and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Hey, here we go on The Bill Press Show this Tuesday, September 12. What do you say? Great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. As we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, uh, buzzing with a lot of activity today in the House and the Senate at the White House. We've got it all covered, The Bill Press Show. We're looking at you on Free Speech TV, Coast to Coast, joining you Coast to Coast, also online on YouTube, our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, and uh, with you, with the great uh, WCPT out in the Chicago area. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, with us in studio this hour as a friend of Bill from HuffPost, Jen Bendry. Uh, her beat is the White House, the Congress, and the rest of the country, it seems, these days. <laughs> right. So Spreading my wings. So you were up in uh, Alaska taking a look at Senator Lisa Murkowski, huh? I was. Yeah. I thought that she deserved a little attention after the health care vote because, you know, John McCain got a lot of attention for being this dramatic last-minute vote 
that came in and he was the final vote that killed Obamacare repeal. But as we know, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski were the two they who kind of held on. firm for yeah, weeks. Right. You know, John McCain swept in the last minute <laughs> and had a dramatic vote. But these two held firm for a few weeks. And Lisa Murkowski comes from a much more conservative state. Right. So she actually went out on a limb more than anybody to hold firm against um, passing an Obamacare So what do people bill. in Alaska, she, she's become, a, like Susan Collins, a fairly independent, maybe not as far as Susan Collins, but a fairly independent uh, Republican. What do, pe- do people like that in Alaska? Well, it's been, she's had years to be independent. She hasn't really been, but something happened this year, and maybe it's Trump. But she has been voting, she's been breaking from her party noticeably on things. She voted against Betsy DeVos for education secretary. She was hmm. only one of two Republicans who did that. She's spoken out pretty harshly uh, against Trump's talk about the, the press, about you know his mm-hmm. criticisms of the media. And then she helped to bring down Obamacare repeal. And this was all in like the span of seven months. Um, and yeah, back home, the people I talked to, I talked to Republicans, I talked to independents, I talked to Democrats. And you know, conservatives aren't very happy with her. But moderate Republicans and independents and obviously Democrats are they're thrilled. They love this Lisa Murkowski because uh, Alaska is really proud of being a very independent state. And and the way she got elected in 2010 was through a write in campaign when a Tea Party candidate bumped her out of the primary and her whole party turned their back on her and she just mm-hmm. stuck it to him. She was mm-hmm. like, all right, I'm running as an independent. I'm doing a write in campaign, which is insane. And she won. And that hasn't happened since like 1952 when Strom Thurmond won re-election on a write-in campaign. So she's a really fascinating person right now. And I have to say, like the people I talked to, by and large, <clears throat> excuse me, they were sure. thrilled that, that she's being kind of mavericky because they like the people I talked to is probably a couple dozen scattered around towns and, and then in Anchorage. Um they just like seeing someone break from the pack and think independently. And it works well for Alaska. And when she's been doing it, it's just been getting her support for the most part back home. Yeah, I've never been to Alaska, but I'm glad to hear you say that because my image of Alaska is, you know, it's a rugged, individualistic kind of uh, frontier state, you know, that they would uh, welcome and embrace somebody who's not just a died in the wall, knee jerk or the member of a party, either party. Right. Right. But and they like forget, a maverick. They do like a maverick. And they've only been a state for maybe 60 years. And, uh, you know, they don't have a very long history there. So like the Murkowski name, for example, is a well-known name. The the Don Young name, you know, he's the only member of Congress from Alaska. Those names resonate throughout the state. So she's got a certain kind of freedom to do more renegade type actions because her name is famous there. She's established herself. Her father was a senator before her. She's got this leeway that most senators don't have to actually break from the pack and do things that she might want to do that don't align with the Republican Party. And do party. you find that she um, enjoys this new role? Well, I, I would think that she does, but she would not uh, get that her office couldn't get her on the phone for me uh, for an interview. So, um, you know, she was. I'm not, I assume that she's feeling pretty good because the reception back home is yeah, it seems right. overall across parties pretty strong for her. But um, I did see a picture of her hula hooping in August at a <laughs> festival in Alaska yeah, right after I, the vote. So it seems like she's feeling pretty liberated. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good sign of it. Uh, dare we ask why we went from uh, Alaska to Wyoming? You can ask. Uh, 
uh, it's a completely different project. Um, HuffPost is doing this um, this national listening tour called HuffPost Listens, where we have we actually have a bus that is driving around to 22 cities, kind of lesser visited cities, lesser mm-hmm. um, profiled cities in the news, and trying to give a voice to people who don't have um, much attention on their communities. So I was chosen for Casper, Wyoming. So there's a bus driving around somewhere, but I actually flew out in advance and spent a week in Wyoming talking to people for a story that we're doing on life in Wyoming. Got it. Okay. Um, There have been several uh, stories uh, in the last couple of days about retirements or near retirements or considering retirements. Uh, I think it's, what are we, three or four Four. Republicans Mm -hmm. in the last week have said they're not going to run for, in the House, not going to run for re-election. Any that you know, are like newsworthy or making? I think they're all newsworthy because none of these people are, um, As I mean, it's pretty early right now. What is it? September 2017. Yeah. Right. So it's pretty early for people to be feeling the heat to get out um, from a polling standpoint. I mean, I think at this point people are looking around and saying, we're not chalking up any wins right now as, as a party. Even though they're in the majority? We're in the majority in the House and the Senate and the White House, but we're not we're not really getting much done here, and um, I'm tired of. I mean, I'm thinking of Charlie Dent right now. He's one of those four, very moderate Republican from Pennsylvania. Right. I think his announcement that he was leaving was maybe the biggest shock. In fact, I don't think um, Democrats had even considered taking over his seat because they didn't expect him to leave. So mm-hmm. it's it tells me that there's there's a real like bubbling up fear among moderate Republicans that either. They're worried about getting all four, defeated. All four of these are moderate Republicans? Uh, three of the four, I would say, are more moderate. I'm trying to remember the name of the one in Washington Reichert. State. Yeah. Reichert. Right. Um, but at least three of the four, I would say, are, are are moderate. And I think they're looking around and they're saying, they're either saying, you know, I don't, things are so polarized right now. I don't really want to do this anymore. It's getting worse. I'm out. Or they're saying, well, <clears throat> or they're saying, uh, you know, I'm not having fun anymore. What, <laughs> what are we getting done here? Why am I doing this to myself? Well, it's interesting to me that these are Republicans who are in the majority in control who are saying we're not getting anything done. You might ex- more expect it from Democrats who are saying, "Jesus, we're in the minority. We, you know, we don't have enough votes to do anything." And you know, they're not even bring letting us bring our bills to the floor. So why hang around here? Right, and but, I think that it speaks to the fact that it is still. A very polarized environment here. It's getting worse. And when you've got the few moderates that are left are peeling off, it tells me they're either worried about losing because at this point they can't hold on to a a moderate seat anymore because it's just so polarized or they're just tired of this and they can't get people to negotiate with them. And maybe there's other things they'd rather be spending their days on than fighting every day. Now, in the Senate, one of the, uh, I thought, stunning news yesterday was that Senator Bob Corker, uh, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, right, said he's not sure he's going to run for re-election in 2018. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got you know a lot of responsibility, huge seat, really popular. He was on the short list, I think, for vice president, or we thought, at any rate, was and talked for a cabinet about, post. For, or for a cabinet Both. post, right, yeah. And what what do we read into that? It's another case of a moderate Republican looking around <laughs> and preparing for a, a challenger from the right. Um, Steve Bannon has already uh, essentially indicated that he's going to fund um, 
uh, challengers to some Republican senators, and one of them is Bob Corker. Mm. And so the timing of the news of Bannon's plans and then Corker's potential uh, retirement tells me that, again, Bob Corker is like, well, either I'm he's either thinking I do not want to go through this fight with a far right candidate that Steve Bannon is throwing millions of dollars at. Or he's just potentially tired of fighting all the time and it's feeling like there's nothing getting done. I'm a moderate. This place is increasingly less moderate. Do I really want to put up a huge campaign again to be here for six more years as a senator when it's just an uphill battle and nothing is we're not getting and, many and deals. Corker has been um not he hasn't hesitated to to challenge Donald Trump or disagree with Donald Trump on He does it all the time, but he does yeah. it in his kind of right. Tennessee yeah you know, hospitable sounding way where it's mm-hmm. it takes you a minute sometimes to realize that he's actually criticized the president because of the way he talks is so um like folksy. Right. <laughs> and then you realize he just criticized the president. <laughs> um uh the other news on the retirement front uh is uh that Orrin Hatch has not yet announced uh that he is not going to seek re election and he may not. He may in fact seek re election, but if he doesn't Mitt Romney, apparently, is out there making preparations just in case. Yeah, he's like a shark this. swimming in the water. Right. It's so awkward when that happens, isn't it? It's, yeah. Somebody hasn't announced if they're leaving or not, and their friend is like, hey, I'm going to take your seat if, if you don't leave. Uh, it is a little early, unless they, you know, maybe they know something I don't. But um, I was a little surprised that Mitt Romney said that if Orrin Hatch has not already said that he's leaving. Yeah. Uh, what uh, what's what's the read on Aaron Hatch? He he is one of the oldest, not not the oldest. I think Diane Feinstein's the mm-hmm. oldest, correct? Yeah. Oh, uh, he's up there. He's been there quite a while. He's in his early eighties. Mm-hmm. So, do people expect him to run for another term? I mean, it's early at this point, but it, it's up to him. I mean, I think he would win comfortably if he ran again. But it comes down to maybe the same thing that Senator Bob Corker's thinking, or some of these moderates. And the House are thinking, not that Orrin Hatch is a moderate, because he's not, but what if he's getting tired of this? Maybe he's feeling the same frustration that they can't seem to get anything passed, even when they control everything. And he's getting older, and do you really want to go through this again? It's a grueling process to campaign for a Senate seat. So, I mean, in the end, he could win if he wanted to run, but it comes Mm -hmm. down to whether he wants it. And if he's looking around and thinking that can he make much of a difference for another six years? And and he said, and the answer is no. Maybe he'll quit. Right. You would think that in his early eighties, Aaron Hatch might be thinking now's the time to think about the next act, right? Well, but remember, there's people like remember Robert Byrd from West Virginia. I mean, some people will literally like stick around here until they they're going to die on the Senate floor. I mean, people are oh, yeah. very wed to these jobs. Sure. So, yeah. Warren Hatch, he could leave or stay, and I mean, he it's in his court. He has the support back home to win. Uh, so tomorrow in the Senate, um, Bernie Sanders is going to, uh, I think, the, goes to the floor, the Medicare for All bill. Uh, yesterday, Cory Booker, here he is, became the latest senator, Democratic senator, to say he is on board. Senator Booker. I'm signing on to Medicare for All, which is, I'm, I'm excited to do this week. Senator Sanders and myself and others are going to be announcing some legislation. I'm signing on to some other of my colleagues all of us working towards this understanding that if you look at American history, it has always been advancements towards greater equality, greater access, greater opportunity. And what we have right now is a country where just because of your wealth will depend upon the kind of, whether you have health care or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you should not be punished because you're working class or poor and be denied health care. 
So Senator Booker joins uh, Jeff Merkley, Kamala Harris from California, Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, maybe a couple of others, I don't know, uh, supporting Bernie Sanders' bill. Wouldn't you agree that this would never have happened if Bernie hadn't run for president? Maybe, but also look at that list of names you just read off. What do they have in common? They're running for president. <laughs> they're at least potentially running for but, president, yeah, every single one of them. They're thinking so about it. So what does that tell you? It tells you that they're they're trying to line themselves up with the uh, the, the progressive base right now instead of yeah. you know trying to be more centrist and, and you know do things that aren't as, as uh, flashy and progressive. And I think they see that Bernie had such success with mm -hmm. this message in 2016. Right. And it's also like this is what the base gets excited about, the progressive base. I mean, once you get out of the primary, you know, if they if these people run and one of them wins and they're pushing Medicare for all. I mean, the, the question is, what happens after the primary? I mean, this is getting way ahead here. This is right. still 2017. Yeah. 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 But no. these are the kinds of things people think about already. Sure. In, in the Senate, if they're considering. And a some run. of these senators are up for reelection. Yeah. I mean, Bernie himself. Yes. Is up for and these things excite the base. But the question is, I mean, th this is not going to go anywhere in the Senate. People will continue to sign on to this bill, and they'll make statements about it, and they'll get people excited. But this is a Republican-run Congress. Right. It's right. not going anywhere. So why would they be doing this? To excite their supporters for something down the road, potentially. Um, one name that's uh, uh, missing from this list is uh, majority uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. You ex would you expect to see him on this? Kirsten Gillibrand's there, not Chuck Schumer yet. Yeah, I would not expect Chuck Schumer to see on, to see Chuck Schumer on this right now. It's it's not the issue that is strategically, um, or do you think strategically? Uh, yeah. I, I don't think he's necessarily opposed, but this right. is not what's on the hot you know on the front burner in the Senate right now. And Chuck Schumer is a is in charge. He's not going to you know take the party off in a different direction from what their plans are on the Senate floor. But I wouldn't be surprised if a little time passes and he signs on to this thing. But they're focused on DACA. They're focused on preventing Republicans from pushing through a tax reform bill that benefits the rich. They're focused on, um, you know, preserving the Affordable Care Act. They're focused on things right now that are actually happening in the Senate. And a bill like this is more of a kind of a signal to voters on on, on an issue that Democrats like. Right. Now, of course, Chuck Schumer showed his stuff last week, along with Nancy Pelosi, uh, when they pulled off this surprise deal with Donald Trump on the three-part debt ceiling, keeping the government going uh, for three months, and uh, aid for uh, uh, for FEMA for Hurricane for Hurricane Harvey. Um, two questions: One, what? And the, Trump really pulling the rug out from under Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. What? What? What has that changed the dynamic in the in the Congress? I think a little bit. I think it's given Democrats a little thrill that, that <laughs> aha, like we yeah. got Trump to vote with us and, you know, take that, McConnell and Ryan. Was, was Trump sending a message to Ryan and McConnell? I don't know. I mean, Trump is not the most strategic person. So um, my guess is that he wanted to have something to say that he accomplished. This is a concrete thing. If he's like, all right, great, short yeah. deal, yeah. three months, get these right. things done, I can turn around and get on Twitter and say, hey, right. I'm the president. I got these three things done for you, America. Make America great again. You know? And the next morning when all the cable news and networks were praising the deal, he was ecstatic. That's right. He wants a win. So it doesn't really matter to him, in, in my mind, who hands it to him. He, yeah. He'll take it. And and I know, I think part of it is that he is frustrated with, <laughs> with at least Mitch McConnell, for one, and probably Paul Ryan, that 
they didn't get health care uh, repeal through. And that was their big thing. And it failed. And Trump has not been shy about complaining about Mitch McConnell in particular for failing to pass the bill. So it, Thank you it, very much, Nancy. Chuck, appreciate it very much. <laughs> <laughs> After the meeting, he kept thanking Nancy and Chuck and never mentioning yeah. Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. Yes. But did, so did it diminish Ryan and McConnell in the eyes of their fellow Republicans in, in, order to, in their ability to get anything done? I think it caught them by surprise, but don't they still control the House and the Senate. I mean, it was maybe a, a slight to them, but... Um, they're in charge in there. Right. So this couldn't have felt good for them, but it doesn't really, you know, hold them back from proceeding with whatever it is they want to do. It's just Trump is so unpredictable that, I mean, I don't think they can count on him for anything at this point. So, Jen, you're saying Steve Bannon is not going to single-handedly topple the uh, McConnell-Ryan regime in Congress? Actually, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Who knows about that? Because that's what he would like to do. That, but, that's what his goal is. Oh, I know. And he's pre- he's talking pretty openly about it, too, which is yeah. crazy. I know. It'd be interesting to see if he follows through, is able to follow yes. through with any of those threats. But so the second question about this deal is could this and they're already discussing the possibility um, of other deals. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure it was the. Yeah. The New York Times this morning. Saying, want to make a deal, Mr. Trump? Okay, you made one deal. Here are some other deals you could make. National Flood Insurance Program, Health Care, Dream Act, Infrastructure, Tax Reform. Could this one deal lead to other deals between Trump and Nancy and Chuck? It's possible, but I, I'm hesitant to make a lot out of this one deal because I don't think Trump's track record suggests that he is actually a deal maker. He kind of oh, he says he is. he says he is all the time, but but he, his track record says otherwise as president. Yeah. And this was a notable deal here, and it was interesting that he went with Democrats on this one. And you can bet that they're feeling really good about this in the Democratic side. But well, he's so again, he's just so impulsive that you can't. It's not like he strategically is now thinking about I'm going to cut this deal and that deal and this deal. But, he's like taking what he can and making. But quick I want to come back to what you said. There's no doubt about it. That he loves getting things done Absolutely. so he can brag about them. Yes. Right? So one little thing, maybe uh, I consider it a little overall, but maybe not so little, is that he and Schumer are talking about, well, we have this battle over the debt ceiling every year. Why don't we just fix the damn thing so that it's an automatic when we need to raise it, you know, it just goes up and then it doesn't become a political football. I could see that. Mm-hmm. Couldn't you? I could yeah, see that I could deal. See that. That's a pragmatic it should be almost a nonpartisan kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it should be. Right? Yeah. Then the next one they're talking about, believe it or not, is, you you mentioned it earlier, possibility of DACA. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Trump feels the backlash from his decision and wants to get this thing behind him and have Congress, in fact, do its job, the Democrats have the votes to make that happen. They don't, well... Not entirely, but they don't need a lot of Republican votes if you get all, all the Democrats. They need some, but yeah. uh, but what they need is is Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell to agree to do it. Put the bill on the floor. Or, you know, it, it sounds like that nobody's expecting the DREAM Act to come up on the floor by itself and get a vote. It sounds like people will have to tie it to something else in order to pass it. So that's part of it. And so what are they going to tie it to? Are they going to make a push to tie it to the FAA bill? You know, there's all these moving bills. You mentioned a couple of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Are they going to tie it to a different spending bill? 
I don't know. But there's got to be some strategy on what they lump it in with in order to try to win over votes on it. Um, And I think if Trump continues to see the outcry over his announcement on DACA, I think he doesn't doesn't seem to like it when he's not popular. Right. So if he feels like he's not popular (laughs) for a while on this issue and you've got Republicans saying it's not a good idea either to end DACA. So, yeah, I could see I could see him caving and just saying, "Okay, let's do DACA, tie it into that FAA bill and also I'll sign it. And that's not exactly what House Republican or Senate Republican leaders want to do. But if it gets to that point, yeah, I could see Trump pushing that. Right. Now, the other issue um, that uh, it seems people are eager to move on to is tax reform. Um, We've talked about this before. I believe as even as of now, there's no bill. Right. There's just a lot of talk. And Donald Trump's given a couple of speeches where the only thing he talks about is lowering the corporate tax rate from 35 to 15. Um, but he's having a dinner with bipartisan leader, bipartisan senators, members of both parties. I think it's tonight at the White House, maybe tomorrow night. Jamie, we've seen that. But um, is this the makings of another deal on tax reform? Again, I would not read too much into Trump's meetings. It's, it's certainly a, 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 yeah. an overture that he's looking potentially for some bipartisan deal. But I, who knows? I mean, right? we got to see what what comes out of this meeting. It is it is notable that he's meeting with people at all from both parties on an issue that is at the forefront right now in Congress. But it's his track record is just so spotty on being consistent on anything and following through with things that. I'm I I don't want to read too much into anything he does right now. The dinner it's, is tonight. It is, yeah, it's tonight. So, yeah. The Democratic senator, senators are Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, and Joe Donnelly. On the Republican <laughs> side, Pat Toomey and John Thune are expected to attend as well. And don't forget that those the Democrats invited to this dinner aren't. No. And they're the uh, well, none of them are in leadership. Well, even John Thune the, is. John, is he? Yeah. Okay. Yes, he's a top leader. Is he? But, yeah. But the um, those Democrats are all. They all stand out for being like the very centrist Democrats in the Senate. Right. So what that tells me is he's looking for those specific three Democrats and maybe only those three Democrats to work with Republicans to pass a tax reform bill that probably will benefit the rich. Um, and it's interesting that Heidi Heitkamp is there. She flew with Donald Trump out to North Dakota, uh, her state last week Mm -hmm. because she said she wanted to learn more about exactly what he meant when he talked about tax reform. And, you know, I watched the speech. We didn't learn anything from that speech about what. So they're having this dinner tonight again without a bill to talk about. It's hard to believe that anything could come out of it. Well, it's, I mean, what does it tell you about these people who are the specific Democrats he's meeting with? I mean, yeah. Heidi Heidkamp, a Democrat from right. North Dakota, right? Um, you know, that's a tough seat for a Democrat to hold on to. I don't know what year she's up for reelection, but it's she didn't just get reelected. No. So she's got to she feels she's got to have Trump on her side in some capacity in order to, to win. So he's looking for Democrats to help with tax reform. They're looking for you know, the president to be on their side on something back home. All three of them are Democrats in states that Donald Trump carried. That's right. Yeah. So and that's, that's and at least two of them, I think, are up for reelection in, right. 20, in 2018. So there's a mutual exchange going on there. It's not just the, you know, goodwill, you know, of bipartisanship. Right. They're looking out for their butts. 
Jen Bedry here with us from HuffPost. Exciting news from California. Yesterday, the Attorney General of California filing a lawsuit against the Trump administration for its rescission of the DACA program and word that this week California may move its presidential primary up from June to March, something that I have long fought for and supported. The Secretary of State of the State of California, Alex Padilla, joining us in studio for the next half hour. Lots of exciting stuff coming up. Stay tuned. But I've talked to people, multiple ones, and they believe that they are putting a slow sedative that they're building up that's also addictive in his Diet Coke. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Here we go. It is The Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And our studio right on Capitol Hill in the heart of the action. And we're brought to you today uh, coast to coast by our good friends, uh, the members of the AFT the American Federation of Teachers, uh, good men and women are teachers of America under President Randy Weingarten, making a difference in our classrooms every day. You bet. Doing the Lord's work, uh, we salute them for their good work and thank them for their support of the program. You can check out the uh, American Federation of Teachers at their website, AFT.org. To help us through the news of the day, Jen Bendry is here from uh, HuffPost. Uh, Jen, always good to have you on board. Thank you. And uh, to catch up with the news on the left coast, uh, my adopted home state of California, we're pleased to welcome to the studio the Secretary of State of California, Mr. Alex Padilla. Alex, it's great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank on. you. Bring a breath of fresh air from the West Coast right here to the studio. Well, on we a, try. We do our best. On a very busy week, by the way. Um, and we start with uh, Attorney General Javier Becerra, our right. good friend, yesterday, uh, making a big announcement uh, that in response to the Trump administration's <laughs> rescission of the DREAMers program, here is uh, Javier Becerra. The great state of California will be filing a lawsuit today against the Trump administration for its unconstitutional and Ill- illegal termination of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. The right thing to do? Uh, absolutely. You know, it was um, an honor to stand uh, alongside Attorney General Becerra on uh, a Tuesday, just a couple of hours after uh, the Attorney General Sessions announcement yeah. about DACA. Uh, and we made a pledge uh, that we've been making for, for several months now uh, to all Californians, all the people who, who believe uh, and share our values uh, but in this particular case, dreamers uh, and the friends and family members of dreamers that we would do anything and everything in our power to protect them, anything and everything in our power to help. And obviously, Attorney General Becerra, as the Attorney General, uh, has the legal resources to develop the strategy, and now he's executing uh, that to uh, stand up on their behalf, and we're all lined up behind them. Well, it's interesting that Attorney General Sessions, uh, when he announced this program, Donald Trump <laughs> didn't want to do it himself, uh, that he said he called it an illegal program. Uh, Javier Becerra yesterday said the rescission of it was illegal, and that's the gist of his lawsuit. 
I Ex- guess. Exactly. And uh, I'll put my money on Attorney General Becerra <laughs> in, in this particular case. You know, it's one thing that's been uh, fascinating about the, the Trump administration, despite the hot air, despite the rhetoric, uh, he's done wonders for civic awareness and education in this country, right? Thank you, Donald Trump, for reminding everybody, in case you forgot it from high school government class, there are three branches of government, not just one, despite what he, he may want. Uh, and so we're going to put those three branches to work. Right. Uh, Jen, you cover the Congress. Um, this Congress has been given six months to act. Are they likely to do so? I don't know. I mean, the question is the strategy that Democrats want to take now. And I wanted to ask you what you think that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi should do now that, you know, they, Pelosi said she had a phone call with Trump and he said that he would support, you know, keeping the DREAM Act. He right? did a tweet. He did, she suggested And he, and he tweeted it. Yeah. Um, but the question is, strategically, do you have any thoughts on how Pelosi and Schumer should um, make this happen because there's a lot of scared people out there right now, and and there's no real plan in place. Yeah, and, and uh, you know Tuesday was sort of a, a high watermark on that fear and that anxiety. You know what what the future holds for Dreamers, and just the whole question about immigration policy and the potential for immigration reform uh, was clearly a big deal during the presidential race. I mean, going back to the primaries when Democratic candidates were you know, all, trying to outdo each other on I'll do comprehensive immigration reform. Republican candidates, you know, were trying to outdo each other on who could be the harshest uh, on immigrants. And, and it continued to uh, snowball into the general election campaign. So you saw a lot of people, not just the Latino community, by the way, uh, immigrants from around the world and, and, and allies and friends and family members of immigrants get involved politically in the last presidential election in the hopes of steps towards comprehensive immigration reform. And so the shock of the re, the result of the presidential election really hit home to a lot of people because it seemed like that hope was out the window. And if you took Donald Trump at his word, the rhetoric from the campaign, you knew that it wasn't good news that would be coming. And so the fear continued to mount between November and January 20th, uh, and it's continued to mount since then. So the, the announcement on DACA was, was not a surprise. What's surprising is that he didn't have the courage to you know, make it himself. He puts uh, Attorney General Sessions up at the podium, uh, and, and uh, you know, he couldn't, uh, didn't have the, the, the courage to address Dreamers directly. That, that's just disrespectful and, and galling. But again, not, nothing is surprising uh, with this president. And as far as just tasking Congress, you, know, you have six months to, to do something or, or, or what he's going to reconsider. He goes back and forth on everything, so we never know uh, where he's going to land. But uh, I'm usually an optimistic person. Uh, but you look at a house with a Freedom Caucus that has a tremendously disproportionate influence in what does and doesn't happen. And then you have the rules of the Senate. Uh, you know better than I. One member can hold an item. It takes 60 votes to get anything done. That's not a promising path uh, here for uh, you know trying to codify uh, DACA, at least not in, in, in isolation. So, yes, it's up to the, the leaders of both parties in both houses to try to package it and get to get something done. By the way, b- leaders, both houses, both parties have been saying for years we, we ought to have ultimately a legislative solution to this uh, immigration policy. So the time to act with real heart is now. So you think Pelosi and Schumer, as the leaders in, in both chambers, um, you think they should like put a bill on the floor now or like, you know, they can't put it on the floor, but they can 
make a strong push every day to vote on it, and they're not doing that right now. I mean, do you have any thoughts on uh, how I, they should do this? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's accurate to say they're not doing it right now. Uh, having been in a legislature, not the United States Congress, but the California uh, state legislature, there's a lot of the things that you'll see happening publicly, trying to advance an agenda or put forward an item. Uh, and then there's the behind the scenes jockeying and negotiating or whatnot. So I do believe that it is a, a daily effort and a daily strategy that's going on. We may not uh, be And I know there's a right discharge now. position to get it on the floor, uh, circulated by a Republican, I believe. Um, jo- Congressman John Yarmouth from uh, um, yeah. Kentucky was in studio Look, Friday, and, and, and I have us. no doubt, if it was allowed to come up for a vote cleanly, it would pass. Yeah. So it becomes a question of leadership. The, and the other thing to acknowledge here is just a couple of years ago, the United States Senate, on a bipartisan fashion, passed a comprehensive immigration reform bill. Right. Fairly balanced, very comprehensive, and the House wouldn't take it up for a vote. The votes were there, but they wouldn't take it up for a vote. Right. It's a question of leadership. Um, the Secretary of State of California, Alex Padilla, here in studio with us. And you are, Mr. Secretary, a member also of the Democratic National Committee's Committee to Protect America's <laughs> Democracy, right? Which, right. that's why you're in town. Um, it, it's, it, it, the timing couldn't be better, I guess, because this is the, the, the day or the week that President Trump's Voter Fraud Commission, the phony Voter Fraud Commission, as I call it, is going up to New Hampshire to investigate this claim that hundreds of people were bussed as part of the national voter fraud they're trying to prove. Hundreds of people were bussed from uh, Massachusetts to New Hampshire to vote in the primary. Right. Um, what, what's the work of your commission doing and um, what are you finding in terms of uh, massive voter fraud around this country? Right. So. Uh uh, Trump's uh, fraud commission, that's what I'm calling it because I think that's what it is. It's a, it's a sham. It's a fraud. Uh, the commission is. Uh, I'm just surprised they chose to go to New Hampshire before they went to Roswell. You know, I <laughs> uh, wasn't sure what sequence they were going to try to tackle those, those items. Uh, but uh, so the, the Democratic National Committee uh, has created this commission, uh, frankly, to counter what we know is going to be a false narrative coming out of the uh, I got to bite my lip here. President's Com- uh, Advisory Commission on Election uh, Integrity. If you look at the basis for the commission, right, Trump's belief that there was millions of illegal votes cast last year, three to five million votes with, with yeah. no proof, not a shred of evidence. Uh, you know, can't wrap his ego around the fact that he lost a popular vote. So he sets up this commission to now go investigate. And on the one hand, they say no pre- preconceived notions. On the other hand, you look at who's in charge and who the members of the commission are. It, it, it is a who's who of voter suppressors in uh, the United States of America, people like my, my, my counterpart from the state of Kansas, uh, Secretary Kobach, who has a long, well-documented career dedicated to not just suppressing the vote, but you know the, the show me your papers law in Arizona, uh, on and on and on. Uh, you know, if that's any indicator of where this commission is going, we know it's not in a good direction as far as voting rights are concerned. Uh, and they use, again, th- th- this misinformation campaign uh, to, to uh, justify their attacks on voting rights. So the DNC establishes uh, our commission uh, to tell the truth on whatever issues the, the Trump commission is going to try to try to raise. Well, states, by every state, the secretary of state, right? monitors voter fraud in that particular state? Absolutely. And, and, and every, everyone reports, correct, and, on and what this, they that's, find? That's what's been so frustrating here. Uh, you know, if the president was genuine about this concern, 
he, he can do a couple of things. First, acknowledge the report after report, investigation after investigation, study after study that's already been done uh, to uh, assess voter fraud in America. Does it exist? Yeah, but it is extremely rare, always very isolated, nothing even close to the massive voter fraud that uh, they continue to try to uh, perpetuate. Uh, number two, uh, if he was genuine and sincere about improving election integrity, and the voter experience, by the way, because the two go hand in hand, then all they have to do is you know, take a little bit of dust off the, the commission report from 2014, right? After the 2012 presidential election, President Obama established a truly bipartisan commission to look at these election issues. And they came out with unanimous bipartisan recommendations, things like, hey, we gotta invest in new voting systems in America. Because what we have is is old and aging, and the reliability becomes an issue for your confidence that your ballot was indeed cast and counted. Or look at what happened in the 2016 election. Our intelligence community seems to be pretty unanimous in, yes, the Russians tried to interfere and tamper right. with our election. You got to acknowledge that and act on that, Mr. President, if you're trying to improve <clears throat> election integrity going forward. No. The, the Trump administration is ignoring that and then focusing on these. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. And, and, and this, you know, the fraud commission themselves said, eh, maybe we'll get to cybersecurity. Maybe we won't. We don't know. Right. This is it feels like an issue that just never goes away. I mean, what is what is the solution to Republicans, you know, constantly trying to scale back voting rates? Is this this comes up every election. It does come up every election, and so when we take a step back and look at it from 30,000 feet, then then their agenda is amazingly clear since they can't uh, – it's harder and harder for them to win elections based on policies they support, uh, and so they, they are trying to influence who the electorate is. And by keeping certain people out, uh, they can try to uh, – you know, continue to survive at the ballot box, but that's uh, frankly un-American and undemocratic. But is there what's the solution? Is there a way to try to finally s prevent people from doing this? So, so two things I think. One, you know, continue to call it out anywhere and everywhere we see it, beginning with this advisory commission. Uh, don't let them use uh, quote unquote alternative facts to justify their voter suppression <laughs> strategies. And number two, try to show a better way. So while some states, too many states, frankly, are moving in the direction of, you know, overly aggressively purging voter rolls or, you know, reducing, eliminating early voting opportunities, things of that nature, you have states like Oregon and California and others moving in the direction of adopting not just online voter registration, but automatic voter registration, right? Mm -hmm. Heaven forbid we make it easier for people who are eligible <laughs> to register to vote or to become registered voters by doing it systematically. Uh, in California, we're taking a, a page out of the Colorado playbook and uh, modernizing how we conduct elections, more vote by mail, and modernizing polling places as we know them, uh, where people can vote anywhere in their county, not just the polling place closest to home. Because hmm. for working folks, you know, travel times and commutes uh, can be a bear. And so uh, if we can add convenience to the voter experience, we ought to do so. Now, uh, as former state chair, Democratic state chair of the state of California, one thing that we wrestled with uh, for so many years was that when it comes to a presidential primary, California didn't count because our primary is so late uh, in June that the nominee for the party is all, usually already decided by that time. So it's a message vote maybe, but, you know, it doesn't really make a difference. 
um, there's a move now to change it and move the primary from June to March. Is that going to happen? Should it happen? Oh, I think this is the, the week we're going to find out. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> uh-huh. Legislation uh, moving its way uh, through through the legislature in California. This is their final week of the session. So uh, my expectation is that there is a bill on the governor's desk by the end of the week uh, to move the California primary from June uh, into March. You know, so for why all, is that important? Uh, because look, California is the most populous state in the nation the most diverse state in the nation, home to more veterans than any state in the nation, and it's the largest economy of any state in the nation, and it ought to have a voice on who the nominees are, you know, frankly, of all parties, uh, not just right. you know one or the other. Would, would this move both party primaries? To uh, this would move the presidential primary, all primaries, to so March. So Republican and Democrat June. would be. Correct. Yeah. It would be a single primary election right. in March Sorry. as opposed to June. So for our, our, our friends in other states worried, like, Wait a minute. Is this going to displace Iowa or New Hampshire or the <laughs> traditional roles? You know, they've played. The answer is no. Uh, it'll still be Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada and South Carolina as well. But California very soon thereafter. Uh, you know, California's looked to as a political ATM for people running for president uh, every four years. And we deserve to be more than that. We ought to have a real say in who the nominees are. And I think by moving our primary up, you have, you know, candidates coming to visit and campaign in California Earned the support of Californians by paying attention to our issues. Uh, let's be honest. Isn't this just a move on your part to help Eric Garcetti become <laughs> the nominee uh, in 2020? Uh, no. Uh, I served with Eric on the Los Angeles City Council. He's, he's a brilliant guy, uh, but this is not He'd a- be a great candidate, too, by the way. <laughs> just, just, just teasing you. But and in Southern California, I get the Eric Garcetti question. In Northern California, I get the Kamala Harris question. Yeah, so. <laughs> there, you, uh, there you go, right? It'll help both, I think. But it could be, would you acknowledge that, uh, Jen, this could mean that because, I forget, what is it, 55 or, no, but electoral votes, but how many delegates from California mean? Yeah. Well, depending huge, on the party huge. formula, right? Yeah. It, but it, it so is the biggest prize it, of any state it, in the it nation. It could mean that whoever wins the California primary is the nominee of the Democratic Party. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, by having our primary the first Tuesday in March, uh, I don't think you'd get to the magic number by then, but it is certainly a momentum builder, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, folks that have been at this for a long, long time would also suggest if there's a candidate that is not doing particularly well in Iowa or New Hampshire or Nevada, South Carolina, they'd be hard-pressed to really reboot in California uh, to... Uh, you know, kind of reclaim some of that momentum. So we, right. we still think there's a diversity uh, of states in the early running of a presidential contest, but California should be sooner and be relevant, not like what it's been uh, for the last 30 years. Governor Brown has indicated he'll support it. Oh, you know Governor Brown. He's not going to say yes or no to the bills <laughs> on his desk. <laughs> but I'm eagerly awaiting the opportunity to answer any questions he may have. How's that? Uh-huh. Okay. Is it? Is it a a, a bill you support? Uh, absolutely. I'm uh, the sponsor of the bill, not the author of the bill. My good friend, uh, Senator Ricardo Lara, is the author of the bill. And uh, uh, the good news is it's been moving through both houses of the legislature with overwhelming bipartisan support. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it could really... Uh, Look, it, that it, would be a game changer. It, 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 it would be a game changer. It would also game. piss off a lot of states that you just bumped out of being relevant. No, well... As Secretary of State, I also have to mention this. Uh, in the past, when the primaries had been moved up, usually just one one for year, one year, and then we were back to June. But the times when California was earlier, turnout went up. 
you know, because for the sure. same dynamic. When sure. presidential candidates are out there campaigning, there's more voter engagement and higher voter turnout. And that's good not just for, for our selection of who we vote for for president, but all the races down ballot that yeah. are equally important. You mentioned that, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm, my memory is fuzzy. I remember we did fight this battle, and we won, and we moved it from June to March, and then it moved back. And I, 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 so why right. would the, that happen? So the I, I attempts, can't remember why that happened. The, but. the previous attempts were just one-offs, right? We're going to do it for this one year, and, and that was oh, it. So this it. bill calls for a permanent shift oh, of the primary. It. Yeah, all right. Yeah, no, I think it's a great move. All for it. Bill, have you ever had a guest that's said more things that are music to your ears? I mean, just any time a California guest comes in, it's just, this is great. This is California. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I feel like I'm home. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, back to the, the DACA thing, one aspect of it that hasn't a lot of people haven't talked about, but is I, I, I want to explore with you the impact on the Latino vote nationwide, you know, from... Now, here's a Donald Trump who says, I'm going to build this wall, right? A Donald Trump who says, we're going to, at one point, we were going to deport 12 million people who are here. But here's a Donald Trump who rescinds the DACA, the Dreamer program, the DACA program, and a Donald Trump who pardons Joe Arpaio. I mean, is any of this going to come back and bite him in the ass in terms of the Latino vote? Nationwide? Look, absolutely. And and it's not just. Are people uh, aware? Oh, trust me, everywhere I go, people are aware. Everywhere I go, people are upset. Uh, Yes, there's the fear and anxiety camp of what may happen to somebody I know or maybe even a relative. Uh, But just the inhumanity and injustice of this all. Again, going back to the campaign, you heard the rhetoric, you heard the rhetoric, and it was uh, was a hypothetical, you know, what would happen if Donald Trump was elected? And then he was elected. And so when, from a matter of if to a matter of when, and now it's happening. It's one thing, you know, the, the Muslim ban, the build the wall. In the early days of the administration, the last couple of weeks alone, I take it back to Charlottesville a month ago. And his, uh, you know, his lack of condemning the violence in Charlottesville uh, was appalling. And a couple of weeks later, he's pardoning Joe Arpaio, who was convicted of violating the civil rights of Latinos and others in Arizona. And, and then he repeals DACA. I mean, he's sending a clear message, not just to injustice, but to the Latino community in the United States specifically. People are absolutely aware. But we've been through this before, too. I mean, you, you, you know what California was like uh, back in absolutely. 1994 when yeah. Proposition 187 was on the ballot. That single-handedly shifted I was state politics. Chair yeah. In, right. in the state of California, you yep. had a lot of people, including my parents, who had been here as legal permanent residents for nearly 30 years, never thinking that they should become citizens, finally taking that step, not just for the sake of becoming a citizen, but so that they could register and they could vote. They've never missed an election. You've had millions of people in the same category. I foresee that happening in state after state across the rest of the country. Um, and I'm hoping it doesn't take 20 years <laughs> to, to shift the politics and a lot of those other states where Latinos can and will have uh, influence and turn the political tide. Uh, Texas is one that I'm thinking of. No, I mean, it, I, it, I just so I, I just read that if Latinos voted in the state of Texas at the same rate that they vote in California, Texas would be a blue state. And, and the numbers are there. The last census, get this, 51% of Californians under the age of 18, this is the 2010 census, were Latino. In Texas, it's 
2010 numbers. So by two, by 2020, all those 8, 9, and 10-year-olds from, mm-hmm. from the 2010 census are going to be 18, 19, and 20 years old. You know, if somebody does the job of making sure they're registered and active voters, Texas can flip, and that just changes the whole electoral map. Uh, now, I have to ask you, you are, a, uh, just about a minute left, you are a secretary, secretary of state of California. I once worked for a man for four years who was Secretary of State of California. His name was Jerry Brown, and he went from Secretary of State to becoming Governor of California. Not just once, Um, not just twice. Not just once, (laughs) and then he came back. Uh, He is termed out, um, so he cannot run for re-election. So there's an election for Governor of California next year. Are we going to see another Secretary of State run for Governor? (laughs) Not, uh, Not me, at least not next year. Uh, I'm up for re-election. That's my my current plan. Uh, trust me, a lot more to do than even I expected. You know, we had the reforms uh, that we came into office. You know, the automatic voter registration, reforming, you know, how we conduct elections. But uh, with the election of Donald Trump and the attack on voting rights across America, we we have our hands full just uh, defending the voting rights that we have now. Uh, so plenty of work to do. So that's a no for running for governor of California in 2018. That's correct. Sounds like a maybe. <laughs> Just to make it complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but it's certainly a yes for running for re-election as Secretary of State. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I love public service, so we'll see what the future holds. Mr. Secretary, it's an honor to have you in the studio today. Give our best to California, all right? We'll do. Try to get back to see you again soon. Thanks, Jen Benry, for being here. Well. Have a great day, friends. We'll see you tomorrow. We'll be looking for you. This is the Bill Press Show. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader.